Section 12 of The Quest of the Golden Girl by Richard Le Gallienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Comprised of Book 3, Chapters 12 through 14. The Quest of the Golden Girl. Book 3, Chapter 12. At the Café de la Paix. As love-making in which we have no share is apt to be either tantalizing or monotonous, I propose to skip the next fortnight and introduce myself to the reader at a moment when I am once more alone. It is about six o'clock on a summer afternoon. I am in Paris and seated at one of the little marble tables of the Café de la Paix, dreamily watching the glittering tide of gay folk passing by. Quote, all happy people on their way to make a golden end of day meditatively i smoke a cigarette and sip a pale greenish liqueur smelling strongly of aniseed which isn't half so interesting as a commonplace whiskey and soda but which i am told has the recommendation of being ten times as wicked i sip it with a delicious thrill of degeneration as though i were eve tasting the apple for the first time for such a power hath white simplicity sin is for the innocent a truth which sinners will be the first to regret it was so i said to myself alfred de Musset used to sit and sip his absinthe before a fascinated world it is a privilege for the world to look on greatness at any moment even when it is drinking so i sat and privileged the world it will readily be surmised from this exordium that incredible as it may seem in a man of thirty this was my first visit to paris you may remember that i had bought orlando's tickets and it had occurred to sylvie and me to use them sylvia was due in london to fulfil a dancing engagement within a fortnight after our arrival so after a tender good-bye which there was no earthly necessity to make final i had remained behind for the purposes of study though logically my pilgrimage had ended with the unexpected discovery of sylvia joy yet there were two famous feminine types of which seeing that i was in paris i thought i might as well make brief studies before i returned to london and finally resumed the bachelorhood from which i had started these were the grisette of fiction and the american girl of fact pending these investigations i meditated on the great city in the midst of which i sat a city how much more it was than that was it not the most portentous capital of modern history think what the word paris means to the emancipated intellect to the political government to the humanized morals of the world not to speak of the romance of its literature the tradition of its manners and the immortal fame of its women france is the brain of the world as england is its heart and russia its fist strange is the power strange are the freaks and revenges of association particularly perhaps of literary association here pompous official representatives may demur but who can doubt 
that it is on its literature that a country must rely for its permanent representation. The countries that are forgotten, or of no importance in the councils of the world, are countries without literature. Greece and Rome are more real in print than ever they were in marble. Though, as we know, prophets are not without honor, save in their own countries, and among their own kindred, the time comes when their countries and kindred are entirely without honor, save by reason of those very prophets they once despised, rejected, stoned, and crucified. Subtract its great men from a nation, and where is its greatness? Similarly, everything, however trifling, that has been written about, so long as it has been written about sufficiently well, becomes relatively enduring and representative of the country in which it is found. To an American, for example, the significance of a skylark is that Shelley sang it to the skies where even it could never have mounted. And anyone who has heard the nightingale must, if he be open-minded, confess its tremendous debt to Keats. A tenth part genuine song, the rest moon, stars, silence, and John Keats. Such is the nightingale. The real truth about a country will never be known till every representative type and condition in it have found their inspired literary mouthpiece. Meanwhile, one country takes its opinion of another from the aperçu of a few brilliant but often irresponsible or prejudiced writers. And really, it is rather in what those writers leave out than in what they put in that one must seek the more reliable data of national character. A quaint example of association occurs to me from the experience of a friend of mine, rich enough to lend to the poor, having met an American friend newly landed in Liverpool, and a hurried quarter of an hour being all that was available for lunch. "'Come, let us have a pork pie and a bottle of bass,' he had suggested. "'Pork pies?' said the American, with a delighted sense of discovering the country. "'Why, you read about them in Dickens!' Who shall say but that this instinctive association was an involuntary, severe, but not inapplicable criticism. A nightingale suggests Keats, a pork pie Dickens. Similarly, with absinthe, grisettes, the Latin Quarter, and so on. Why, you read about them in Murger, in Rousset, in Balzac, and in Flaubert, and the fact of your having read about them is, I may add, their chief importance. So rambled my after-dinner reflections, as I sat that evening, smoking and sipping, sipping and smoking, at the Café de la Paix. Presently, in my dream, I became aware of English voices near me, one of which seemed familiar, and which I couldn't help overhearing. The voice of the husband said, You can never mistake the voice of the husband. T'was the voice of the husband I heard him complain. The voice of the husband said, Dora, I forbid you. I will not allow my wife to be seen again in the Latin Quarter. I permitted you to go once as a concession to the Café d'Arcourt, but once is enough. You will please respect my wishes. But, pleaded the dear little woman, whom I had an immediate impulse, 
Perseus liked to snatch from the jaws of her monster, and turning to the other lady of the party of four, but Mrs. Blank has never been, and she cannot well go without a chaperone. Surely it cannot matter for once. It isn't as if I were there constantly. No, said the husband, with the absurd pomposity of his tribe. I'm very sorry. Mrs. Blank will, of course, act as she pleases, but I cannot allow you to do it, Dora. At last the little wife showed some spirit. Don't talk to me like that, Will, she said. I shall go if I please. Surely I am my own property. Not at all, at once flashed out the husband, wounded in that most vital part of him, his sense of property. There you mistake. You are my property, my chattel. You promised obedience to me. I bought you, and you do my bidding. "'Great heavens!' I ejaculated, and springing up, found myself face to face with a well-known painter whom you should have thought the most bohemian fellow in London. And bohemian he is, but bohemians are seldom bohemians for anyone save themselves. They are terrible sticklers for convention, and even etiquette, in other people.' We recognized each other with a laugh, and presently were at it hammer and tongs. I may say that we were all fairly intimate friends, and thus had the privilege of entire liberty of speech. I looked daggers at the husband, he looked daggers at me, and occasionally looking at his wife gave her a glance which was like the opening of Bluebeard's closet. You could see the poor murdered bodies dangling within the shadowy cupboard of his eye. Of course we got no further. Additional opposition but further enraged him. He recapitulated what he would no doubt call his arguments. They sounded more like threats, and as he spoke I saw dragons fighting for their dams in the primeval ooze, and heard savage trumpetings of masculine monsters without a name. I told him so. "'You are,' I said, "'and you will forgive my directness of expression. "'You are the primeval male. "'You are the direct descendant of those Romans "'who carried off the Sabine women. "'Nay, you have a much longer genealogy. "'You come of those hairy anthropoid males "'who hunted their mates through the tangle of primeval forests "'and who finally obtained their consent, shall we say, "'by clubbing them on the head with a stone axe.' You talk a great deal of nonsense about the new woman, but you, sir, are the old male. And, I continued, I have only to obtain your wife's consent to take her under my protection this instant. Well, curiously enough, the old male, as he is now affectionately called, became this moment quite a bosom friend. Nothing would satisfy us but that we should all lodge at the same pension together, and there many a day we fought our battles over again. But that poor little wife never, to my knowledge, went to the Café d'Arcourt again. End of Book 3 Chapter 12 The Quest of the Golden Girl Book 3 Chapter 13 The Innocence of Paris this meeting with William and Dora 
was fortunate from the point of view of my studies for that very night as i dined with them on pension i found that providence with his usual foresight had placed me next to a very charming american girl of the type that i was particularly wishful to study she seemed equally wishful to be studied and we got on amazingly from the first moment of our acquaintance by the middle of dinner we were pressing each other's feet under the table and when coffee and cigarettes had come, we were affianced lovers. Why should I blush to own I love? was evidently my quaint little companion's motto, and indeed she didn't blush to own it to the whole table, and publicly to announce that I was the dearest boy, and absolutely the most lovable man she had met. There is nothing she wouldn't do for me. Would she brave the terrors of the Latin Quarter with me, I asked, and introduce me to the terrible Café Horcourt, about which William Endora had suffered such searchings of heart? Why, certainly, there was nothing in that, she said. So we went. Nothing is more absurd and unjust than those crude labels of national character which label one country virtuous and another vicious one musical and another literary thus france has an unjust reputation for vice and england an equally unjust reputation for virtue i had always i confess been brought up to think of paris as a sort of sodom and gomorrah in one good americans might go to paris according to the american theory of a future state but certainly I had thought no good Englishman ever went there, except, maybe, on behalf of the Vigilance Society. Well, it may sound an odd thing to say, but what impressed me most of all was the absolute innocence of the place. I mean this quite seriously, for surely one important condition of innocence is unconsciousness of doing wrong. The poor despised Parisian may be a very wicked and depraved person, but certainly he goes about with an absolute unconsciousness of it upon his gay and kindly countenance. Seeing the world usually means seeing everything in it that most decent people won't look at. But when you come to look at these terrible things and places, what do you find? Why, absolute disappointment! Have you ever read that most amusing book, Baedeker, on Paris? I know nothing more delightful than the notes to the Montmartre and Latin quarters, the places to which you, as a smug Briton, may or may not take a lady. The scale of wickedness allowed to the waxwork British lady is most charmingly graduated. I had read that the café where we were sitting was one of the most terrible places in Paris, the Café d'Arcourt, where the students of the Latin Quarter take their nice little domestic mistresses to supper. But Baedeker was dreadfully pecksniffian about these poor innocent étudiants, many of whom love their lovers much more truly than many a British wife loves her husband, and are much better loved in return if you doubt it dare to pay attention to one of these young ladies and you will probably have to fight a duel for it in fact 
these romantic relations are much more careful of honor than conventional ones for love and not merely law keeps guard i looked around me where were those terrible things i had read of where was this hell which i had reasonably expected would gape leagues of sulphur and blue flame beneath the little marble table i mentally resolved to bring in action against Baedeker for false information. For what did I see? Simply pairs and groups of young men and women chattering amiably in front of their box or their Americans. Here and there a student would have his arm round a waist everyone else envied him. One student was prettily trying a pair of new gloves upon his little woman's hand. Here and there blithe songs would spring up from sheer gladness of heart, and never was such a buzz of happy young people, not even at a Sunday-school treat. To me it seemed absolutely Arcadian, and I thought of Daphnis and Chloe and the early world, nothing indecorous or gross, all perfectly pretty and seemly on our way home semiramis was so sweet to me in her innocent heartless frankness that i went to bed with an intoxicating feeling that i must be irresistible indeed to have so completely conquered so true a heart in so few hours i was the more flattered because i am not a vain man and am not like some accustomed to take hearts as the israelites took jericho with a blast of one's own trumpet but alas my dream of universal irresistibility was but short-lived for next afternoon as william and i set out at some cafe together i found the object of chaff well said william how goes a love affair i flushed somewhat indignantly at his manner with sanctities i see he said i see you are already corded and labeled and will be shipped over by the next mail to miss semiramis wilcox one zero zero one ninety ninth street philadelphia u s a man with care well i did think you'd got an eye in your head look here don't be a fool i suppose she said you were the first and last the last you certainly were there are limits even to the speed of american girls but the first my boy you are more like the twelfth to my ocular knowledge here comes dubois the poet he can tell you something about miss semiramis eh dubois you know miss semiramis wilcox don't you the frenchman smiled and shrugged in pew he said don't be an ass and get angry William continued, it's all for your own good. The little Semiramis has been seducing my susceptible friend here. Like many of us, he has been captivated by her naturalness, her naivete, her clear good eyes, that look of nature that is always art. May I relate the idol of your tragic passion, dear Dubois, as an object lesson? The Frenchman bowed and signed William to proceed. You dined with us one evening, and you thus met for the first time. You sat together at a table. What happened with the fish? She swore I was the most beautiful man she had ever seen, and I am not beautiful, 
as you perceive. If not beautiful, the poet was certainly true. Oh, what happened at the entree? Oh, long before that, we were pressing our feet under the table. And the coffee? Mon Dieu, we were Tristam and Isolt. We were all the great lovers in the pantheon of love. And what then? Oh, we went to the Café d'Arcourt, mon ami. Did she wear a veil? I asked. Oui, certainement. And did you say, why do you wear a veil? Setting a black cloud before the eyes and gates of heaven? The very words, said the Frenchman. And did she say, yes, but the veil can be raised? She did, mon pauvre ami, said the poet. And did you raise it? I did, said the poet. And so did I, I answered. And as I spoke there was a crash of white marble in my soul, and lo, love had fallen from his pedestal and been broken into a thousand pieces. A heavy, dead thing, he lay upon the threshold of my heart. We had appointed a secret meeting in the salon of the pension that afternoon. I was not there, nor, as I afterwards learned, was Simiramis. When we did meet, I was brutally cold. I evaded all her moves, but when at last I decided to give her a hearing, I confess it needed all my cynicism to resist her air of innocence, of pathetic devotion. If I couldn't love her, she said, might she go on loving me? Might she write to me sometimes? She would be content if now and then I would send her a little word, Perhaps in time I would go to believe in her love, etc. The heartbroken abandonment with which she said this was a sore trial to me. But though love may be deceived, vanity is ever vigilant, and vanity saved me. Yet I left her with an aching sense of having been a brute, and on the morning of my departure from Paris, as I said good-bye to William and Dora, I spoke somewhat seriously of Semiramis. Dora, Dora-like, had believed in her all along, not having enjoyed William's opportunities of studying her, and she reproached me with being rather hard-hearted. Nonsense, said William. If she really cared, wouldn't she have been up to bid you good-bye? The words were hardly gone from his lips when there came a little knock at the door. It was Semiramis. She had come to say good-bye. Was it in nature not to be touched? Good-bye, she said, as we stood a moment alone in the hall. I shall always think of you. You shall not be to me as a ship that has passed in the night, though to me you have behaved very much like an iceberg. We parted in tears and kisses, and I lived for some weeks with that sense of having been a Nero, till two months after I received a much glazed and silvered card to the usual effect. And so I ceased to repine for the wound I had made in the heart of Semiramis Wilcox. Of another whom I met and loved in that brief month in Paris, I cherished tender memories, prim little Pauline Descapelle, how clearly I can still see the respectable brass plate on the door of your little flat, Mademoiselle Descapelle, Moore et Robes, 
and indeed the mots and robes were true enough for you were in truth a very hard-working little dressmaker and i well remember how impressed i was to sit beside you as you plied your needle on some gown that must be finished by the evening and meditate on the quaint contrast between your almost puritanic industry and your innocent love of pleasure i don't think i ever met a more conscientious little woman than little pauline Descapel. there was but one drawback to our intercourse she didn't know a word of english and i couldn't speak a word of french so we had to make shift to love without either language but sometimes pauline would throw down her stitching in amused impatience and going to her dainty secretaire write me a little message in the simplest baby french which i would answer in french and which would knit her brows for a moment or two and then send her off in peals of laughter it was french i know among the brick-brack of my heart i still cherish some of those little slips of paper with which we made international love question and answer vous allez m'oublier et ne plus penser à moi ni me voir les hommes menteurs pas dire la vérité so ran the questions considerably devoid of auxiliary verbs and such details of construction je serai jamais t'oublier ran the frightful answers dear pauline shall i ever see her again she was but twenty-six she may still live end of book three chapter thirteen the quest of the golden girl book three chapter fourteen end of book three so ended my pilgrimage i had wandered far and loved many but i came back to london without the golden girl i had begun my pilgrimage with a vision and it was with a vision that i ended it from all my goings to and fro upon the earth i had brought back only the image of a woman's face the face of that strange woman of the moorland still haunting my dreams of the night and the day it was autumn in my old garden damp and forsaken and the mulberry tree was hung with little yellow shields my books looked weary of awaiting me and they in the whole lonely house begged me to take them where sometimes they might be handled by human fingers mellowed by lamplight cheered by friendly laughter the very chairs begged mutely to be sat upon the chill white beds to be slept in yes the very furniture seemed even lonelier than myself so i took heed of their dumb appeal i know i answered them tenderly i too with you have looked on better days i too have been where bells have knolled to church i too have sat at many a good man's feast yes i miss human society even as you my books my bedsteads and my sideboards so let it be it is plain our little margaret is not coming back our little margaret dear haunted rooms will never come back 
no longer shall her little silken figure flit up and down your quiet staircases her hands filled with flowers and her heart humming with little songs yes let us go it is very lonely we shall die if we stay here all so lonely together it is time let us go so thereon i wrote to a furniture remover and went out to walk around the mossy old garden for the last time and say good-bye to the great mulberry under whose dodonesque shade we had sat half frightened on starry nights to the apple-trees whose blossom had seemed like fairyland to margaret and me town-bred folk to the apricots and to the peaches and the nectarines that it had seemed almost wicked to own as though we had gone abroad in silk and velvet to the little grassy orchard and to the little green corner of it where margaret had fallen asleep that summer afternoon in the great wicker chair and i had brought a dear friend on tiptoe to gaze on her asleep with her olive cheeks delicately flushed her great eyelids closed like the cheeks of roses and her gold hair tumbled about her neck well well good-bye tears are foolish things they will not bring margaret back good-bye old garden good-bye i shall never see you again good-bye end of chapter fourteen end of book three end of section twelve